Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 252 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Healing Through Trauma, an interview with Allie Cates. My name is Carrie Perry. My name is Richard Johannesson. So I love this podcast because it had so many layers to it. Allie is an exceptional young woman. She has gone through so many parts of trauma, and most of us would think the trauma is just with Lyme, but she has really gone through trauma from childhood, her later teen years, adulthood. And what I find that is most beautiful about Allie's interview is that she was able to take her trauma and heal from it because Lyme entered her life. So I love this podcast and I'm so excited for you to hear what Allie Cates has to say. Hey, Allie. Oh my gosh. We're so excited to have you on Tick Food Camp today. And I'm excited to be a guest co-host with you. So excited you're here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So I, not too long ago, was interviewed by the great Rich and Matt, and I had such a great experience. So I'm pretty sure this is going to be something like that for you today. You'll be surprised kind of what you learn through this podcast. I think, you know, from your own self, but right now, because I've been a, a budding journalist lifestyle reporter. So by nature, I'm super nosy. I think that's why the guys had me on the podcast today. And I just want to know about you. And I think it's really important that, that we understand you as a person, not just a person who, you know, got bitten by a tick. So we're going to go to like little Allie, <laughs> if you can go back in time and talk to us about, you know, where you lived and like the kind of kid you were. Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up in Shingle Springs, California, which is a small little town up in the foothills on your way to Lake Tahoe. Um, I lived there from the time of birth to 15 years old and then moved to the Bay area, but little Allie was so active. I started swimming competitively when I was three and a half years old because I could swim the whole length without stopping and holding onto the rail. Like I was a fish. Um, I was a horseback rider. I did um, competitive show jumping I was a cheerleader. So like every single season I had something that I was doing as really active. I was in dance. I was in soccer, like every kind of thing that a little kid, I feel like you run the gamut of different activities and I loved it. I loved being outside. We lived on an acre parcel. We had like a pond in the back. So we would always go for walks and like swim in the pond, which is disgusting to think about now because it was a gross little pond. But, um, I was always very active very happy, go lucky, like really caring child. Um, and it wasn't until I was probably 11, 12 was when things kind of started to turn, which was where I finally got, well, I didn't get a live diagnosis, but I got a diagnosis of Hashimoto's thyroid condition, PCOS at 13, which was kind of wild because that was like when I was just going into having a cycle so it was interesting that I was getting all of this diagnosis. And the reason why was because I was, as I said before, I was really active, outgoing, like sunshine, little girl. Like everyone was like, oh my gosh, Allie is so bright. All these things, like just so much energy. And it came to a point where I was sleeping 20 hours a day, did not want to eat, did not want to go out and do anything fun that I normally would want to do. Like, I remember my mom being like, I'll take you shopping. Let's go do this. Like all the things that are kind of a treat to do. She was just trying to like, get me out of bed to keep going. And I couldn't, I was so tired. I was so, so tired. 
And, you know, when I was 11, I, they were like, oh, you have mono. And I honestly didn't even take time off from school because they were like, it's fine. You'll be fine. So got diagnosed with that. And then when I was 13 was when my thyroid was just a wreck. And I remember the doctor saying like, we had to really figure out my thyroid medication for a long time. It took like, I think a year to a year and a half to find a specialist, figure out my thyroid medication. And even when we figured it out in quotes, I was still like, I still feel bad. Like nothing's really shifted for me. And I remember the doctor saying something should shift for you. Like it needs to happen. Like you should be feeling better. You should be feeling better, but I was never feeling better. And you know, at that age. And I think for most of us that have chronic illness or go through seeing doctors, it's like you put doctors on a pedestal and we forget that they're still humans and they have their moments where like, they don't know what's going on. And so, especially when you're 13, you're like, oh, the doctor knows everything. So I'm like, of course I should just be feeling better. I have to figure it out in my head. It's all in my head. I have to figure it out. And so I just kept on really pushing. Like I learned how to put on like my warrior shields and like push my way through life, um, which is a blessing and a curse because there's times where like, you know, that just becomes your MO and you don't know how to take it off anymore. But yeah, I would say that's like young alley version. So there's so much to unpack because you went from your little, I can't believe it, three and a half, you were swimming 25 meters, 20 or 25 yeah. yards, whichever your pool is. That's, that's awesome. Little Allie. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you brought us up to, you know, basically being sick, but I do want to take you back just a little bit more because you really breezed through that, you know, parts of your childhood that had nothing to do with when you got sick. So me being super curious, yeah. um, I just, I want to know a little bit more about like the d- dynamics in, in your family. So you're this, you're this ball of fire, ball of sunshine. So First of all, do you have siblings? Yeah, I have an older sister. Okay. I now have three step siblings that I adore. Um, yeah. Did you get along with your older sister? I did. You know, we're six years apart. I had um, some childhood. I had quite a, quite a bit of childhood trauma um, okay. that happened that I think when you're that young and things happen to you at a young age, you kind of breeze over them. You think that what's happening is very normal. I grew up in a home that was pretty rough. I would say like looking back on it, my parents did the absolute best that they could, but um, my dad was cheating on my mom for a really long time. And I kind of felt that pain a lot as a kid because you know, when you're young and you're like this ball of sun, like I was always the energizer bunny. Like anytime someone was sad, I was always trying to like push people through it even more. Like, cause I didn't understand how to be with my hard emotions of what I was going through as a kid. Right. So I definitely, there was, there was a lot of that happening and it wasn't until I was 15. My parents got divorced. We moved to the Bay area in with my grandma, who was like my best friend. Um, but yeah, there was definitely the, the dynamic at home was, it was rough. It was hard to be around. I'm so sorry to hear that. And, you know, of course that probably prepared you to be a hero. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've likened this to something I kind of went through when I was, had an epiphany in college where you've gone through so much and all you've done was try to be the best you could with your parents because everything else was, you know, feeling out of whack. 
but because you had to do that at such a young age, um, I wonder if uh, it kind of gave you the same toolbox that later when you were sick and having all of these other issues unknown yeah. that you were trying to still trying to be, Hey, good, we're good. We're fine. Yeah, I'm totally. dealing with it. Do you oh think God. that's what it was? 1000%. I am queen. Like if you could get a gold medal for putting your, shoving your emotions under the rug and putting your pain aside, I would win. Like, I think most people that have chronic illness, it gets to that point. Like there's, you know, and we can get into this later, but there's so many times along my health journey that I've dealt with chronic pain for 10 years of like really severe pain. And then all of a sudden I'm like, I can't handle this anymore. And it's like, your tolerance gets super low at the end of when you're like, I can't handle this anymore. Something needs to change. So completely. I mean, it's why I do what I do. Honestly, it's why I became a trauma coach, which we'll get into later because I have been that I still struggle with that of like not shoving your pain and what you've been through under the rug. Right. I think it's very common. And unfortunately it's very praised in this, you know, society that we live in. Well, and it was interesting to me, not, not knowing any, I had no idea about your trauma pre Lyme. It's just interesting to me that you talked about this bubbly alley and you shifted straight into how you got sick. You glazed over that part. Mm -hmm. I get it now. I really do. Um, and I'm sure, you know, with what you do in your profession, you can even look back at that and go, okay, I know why oh, I yeah. lays over those parts, <laughs> but at some point in time, were you a kid who like really had desires? Like I know, you know, maybe in your room, hanging out by yourself, you thought when Allie can get out of this mess, whichever it is, whether it's yep. the home mess or the illness mess, when Allie can get out of this, like, what are Allie's like hopes and dreams? What did you see yourself as? Some people would say, you know, what did God place on your heart? Others might say, spiritually, how did you think you were moved to be who you were going to be? What did you think was going to be Allie's goals and dreams in life? Yeah, I thought I was going to be a teacher because I came from a long line of teachers. My grandma was a home ec teacher and she was my best friend. Like I would sit in the closet and talk to her for like an hour and a half. I learned how to dial her phone number at like three. So we were best friends from like very young until she passed away, but she's still with me. But um, so I definitely was like, I'm going to be a teacher. And then it was always, you know, the thing that I feel like God's always put on my heart or my angels or just the universe is to be a support for people because I've always learned that's just kind of naturally what I feel like is my calling. Like I'm people's hype woman. Like I'm, you know, I'm like, they're kind of like go-to I feel like. And that's where I feel the most comfortable and the most at ease is when I'm like supporting people, holding space for them. So I didn't really know how that was going to turn out. I thought it was maybe a teacher or yeah, I was like, I'm going to be a teacher. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> That is super interesting. That's super at that age that you are intuitive to feel that way. I have to just wonder, is it a protection, a protective piece of that, that you could be everybody else's cheerleader because it was just kind of hard to be yeah. Alice's cheerleader. I'm sure. Honestly. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely part of that, that it's like the protective layer of it's easier to help other people than it is to look inward and look at yourself and unpack and unlearn all of the things that you've been through and to like learn a new way of doing that. Of course. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I always got along with my teachers really well. And I think that because I was in a hard place at home for a long time, that 
they were always my outlet to kind of like talk to and look at. So for sure. But, you know, even from like the womb, my mom always says like, you were just kind of like my wing baby. Like you were always just like right there, right next to me. And so I feel like that's where I've always been kind of intuitively drawn to, like I'm a hugger, I'm a big like affirmation gal. And so that's just kind of, you know, whether that's out of trauma or out of like intuition and, you know, what I've been put on this earth to do. It's interesting how it's evolved to where I am now. Oh, hundred percent. I don't think yeah. it was an accident. It's just interesting how the road was not just straight. It yeah, yeah. went up and down and over a hill and around again. So yeah. let's go back or forward, however we want to say it to, you were talking about, um, kind of hitting this wall of not feeling well. And you say you're, you know, a preteen, early teen, mm-hmm. um, talk to us about that again, when you kind of felt like, okay, I'm not like, I can't go out and do all the things I was going to do before. At least you're noticing yeah. it. Tell me about that wall that you hit. Yeah, it was, um, you know, and they always like, people always say that Lyme disease usually becomes, goes from dormant to not dormant when you have like a traumatic incident, like a car accident, a death in the family. Right. So my grandma, who was my best friend, uh, had a major fall and we, she was in the ICU and then she was moved to a rehab home here in Sonoma County. And so my mom and I just went to the Bay area because we were living in Shingle Springs at the time and stayed with her for the whole summer. And it's hard. Like she's my very best friend, right? Like grandma was everything to me. And, um, so that was when a lot of this was kind of lining up was that I was like, so sick. And I was sick before she got hurt. We were dealing with my thyroid and everything, but it's when it kind of blew up. Like I gained 30 pounds in two and a half months, not eating, like sleeping 20 hours a day, you know, like wild stuff was happening to my body. And then that's when they were like, oh, we need to adjust your thyroid medication. Oh, we need to do this. Um, And I just remember feeling like it just moves me to tears even now, like just so helpless because you're so young. You like, don't know what's happening to your body, you know? And you're like, it's like, still gives me tears. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the doctors are telling you that everything should be fine and it's not fine. Like there's still something so wrong with your body. And like, this thing that's like taking over. Like, I felt like I went from this bubbly, happy, go lucky person who was like at, you know, in sixth grade. So I was like 11 or 12. I was riding all of these horses. I was training all these horses for my trainer. Cause I was like a pretty good horseback rider. So I would be riding like after school, like four or five horses a day, like after school. Right. So it's like, I had a lot of stamina to do all these things and I was tiny, like I was young. So it's like, you're riding these big show jumping horses. Like it's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. Um, And going from that to this, like, you can't really move, you're tired and your doctors are telling you, you should be feeling fine. And like, that's when I turned to alcohol, to be honest, because everyone was telling me I should be fine. And I wasn't fine. And I just needed to like escape my body because my body was not safe anymore. Um, well, you didn't trust it. You didn't trust it because right now it's, you know, okay. So you were what 12, 13 when you turned to alcohol, I was 14, 
14. So Mm -hmm. one of the doctors that our daughter had said something that's always reminded me, um, and a lot of things in life, it's like the bucket theory, you know, your bucket is full and it's it's always rated a threshold, right. Until that big rock comes in and stuff spills out. So the grandmother falling was the rock that went into the bucket stuff is spilling out. So, but at this age, did you feel like you could articulate did you have the ability to articulate to the doctors? Did you feel like you were getting frustrated when you were talking to them or even to your yeah. mom or anyone else? You know, I feel like my mom was a huge advocate. My mom is an angel and she was just like, there's something wrong. Like she was the one that was like, there's something wrong. We're going to get to the bottom of this. Like it was, it felt like my mom and I against the world because we, <laughs> you know, we're like trying to advocate so hard. Um, but Yeah. I mean, I definitely feel like there was a point where I just had in my head, I was like, maybe it's all in your head. Like maybe, maybe this is all in your head and you have to push past it. And I didn't feel like I was being heard from my doctors at all. I felt like they were upping and changing my thyroid medication and telling me that it had to be getting better. So you need to be getting better or else we're going to look at like putting you on antidepressants and stuff, you know, like And that's what scared me because I was like, oh, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm better. I'm better. I'm better. You know, like not that medication is bad for your mental health at all. But I think at that age, at 13, I was like, oh, it's fine. I'm better. I'm fine. I'll figure it out. You know, like I'll figure, I'll put on this warrior kind of mentality and just forge my way through life because there's, I can't turn to these doctors that I'm looking to, to really help me figure out what's going on in my body. Mm, so once again, Allie is coming in and saving Allie, right? Yeah, Allie's totally. Coming in and saving Allie. Yeah. So how did this get in the way of you? Um, I, first of all, I appreciate all the horseback riding because our youngest daughter rides horses. So I understand that energy and the passion and all of that and all the other things that you did. How did this infiltrate your your life? You know, your relationships as a young person with your friends and being out at the barn and doing all these, all these other things. How did it derail you? I mean, I think the weight gain when you're in middle school mm-hmm. is just so hard. Like middle school is hard in general. I would never go back there, but you know, over a summer gaining 30 pounds as like a seventh grader going into eighth grade is just a lot. Like people are rude. People are mean. And I definitely felt like sad. I mean, I felt depressed because I was alone in a lot of it because people are mean. And I still try to just be like that. I remember one guy saying to me who was like a friend, you know, and he's like, why are you still so nice to me? And I'm still so mean to you. Like, that's like the thing. Like, and it's like high, not high school. High school is great. Middle school was just rough. I think that that's how my middle school was. And simultaneously, my parents, my parents' marriage was just getting worse and worse. And they got divorced after my freshman year of high school. And so it's like, you have all of that background kind of happening. And it's like, oh, Allie needs to put herself on the back burner because something bigger is happening and you have to like, keep on trudging forward for sure. My goodness. Like my shoulders literally feel heavy for you because it sounds like it's such a formidable age. I mean, that's a formidable age, right? Yeah. I mean, that's when you're really supposed to be Um, your brain is supposed to be like introducing to, you know, to all these great things that are going to help you be who you're going to be and forge some friendships that could be a lifetime. And I mean, it's a big deal during that time frame of your life. So here you are, you know, you're, you're preteen into your teens, 
you've been sick. Your grandmother has this awful injury that's made you even sicker. You are derailed in doing a lot of things you want. You're making sacrifices in so many different ways yeah. to make sure everybody else is okay. And you're even, you're even being kind to the people who are mean jerks. to you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my gosh, that's exhausting in and of itself, Allie. Do you, I mean, yeah. do you recognize how exhausting that was for you? No. Yeah, for sure. Definitely years of therapy. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah, <laughs> developmental trauma, like all of that was real. And you know, I did get into the drinking part of it heavily. Like my freshman year, my best friend and I would go out four to five times a week drinking, like sneaking out drinking. And I got raped when I was 15. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Some guy. Allie. Yeah. Yeah. Some guy was 18, took advantage of me, drugged our drinks. That's how I lost my virginity. And then like a month later, because I was so like, as you can imagine, all this stuff is building up. Right. And a month later, I, um, drank so much that I ended up in the emergency room with alcohol poisoning. They were like telling my dad, they had to do an MRI in my face because I have this huge black bruise across my face. And they were like, we think that someone took a baseball bat to your daughter and raped her. And I remember saying that already happened. Like my dad was like, what the hell? What, what? And so I like all of that. And then we moved like this was right in the middle of my parents' divorce. Like my mom was moving stuff into my grandma's house. She was in Marin. I was in the Bay Area. I was actually grounded for drinking and snuck out and did this. Yeah, no, it was so bad. It was so bad. Like poor young Allie. It was so bad. I'm three years sober. So. Oh, I'm so proud of you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I give me a minute because I can't even imagine. I mean, I'm a mom first and foremost. So my mom heart just aches for these experiences that you went through. I mean, they ache and I want you to know, I'm so sorry that that was the type of childhood that you experienced. You didn't have one or two or three traumas. And in the list of everything it almost makes sense why, like, I have a tick-borne disease. Like, pff, take a back seat, man. Yeah, I mean, yeah. all this other stuff. But all that other stuff had to have exacerbated. Oh yeah. Your oh my god. Journey. Oh my gosh. Completely. Like the damage that I did to my liver that night from drinking and literally almost dying. Like it's it still affects me in this day when I try to detox from everything. You know, like it's. Of course it's wild, but yeah, that was definitely when like, you know, from the childhood trauma and then the sexual assault, like I just kept on trying to leave my body on top of having a tick-borne illness on top of having all these things going on. I was just like, okay, you know, there's, I don't know, like something, something has to shift for me and nothing was shifting with me for my health. So I was like, I'm going to make it shift by going to alcohol. And I think a lot of people that struggle with chronic illness have addiction or they struggle with trying to find another way to leave their body because it doesn't feel safe. And it feels like whatever they're doing isn't working. That's a great way to put it. Leave their body because their body doesn't feel safe anymore. It feels pretty foreign to them. It's not, if there's a big disconnect there, that's, that's, that's wild. So, okay, let's, let's talk about when you were sick, you had 
I feel like it was yesterday that you told us about <laughs> all the different, um, you know, diagnoses that you had, but if yep. you could just unpack those again for us, as we kind of go into when you got diagnosed. So talk to us again. I know you said you had Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, and then list some of the other things that they thought was going on with you. Yeah. So at 13, they were like, you have Hashimoto's hypothyroidism because of the weight gain, everything else. And then PCOS, because I was showing that I had cysts on my ovaries. Um, and the way that my like testosterone and hormones were fluctuating, they were like, Oh, you definitely have PCOS. And tell everybody what PCOS is if they don't know. Yeah. Polycystic ovarian syndrome, right? Yeah. Syndrome. Yeah. And it's where you have cysts on your ovaries. It's painful. They burst, they, um, you know, it can mess with like weight gain, cortisol, all of that. So at that time they're giving you treatment for all of this. What kind of treatment was that? They were giving me, they had me on thyroid medication because they were like, Oh, the PCOS will hopefully they told me, okay, this is a funny part. Not really, but they were like, Oh, if you lose the weight, you won't have PCOS PCOS anymore. And I was like, okay, I'm confused, but who knows? So then at like 15 or 16, they were like, okay, you don't have PCOS anymore because you're on birth control now, (laughs) which is a whole nother story. Yeah. Oh yeah. All right. I mean, that was, how nice is that? Just a quick, like here it's gone. Yeah. So as you started getting, you were still sick. And when did the, when did the symptoms start to what you now know were looking like Lyme and and other co-infections? When I was 13, I would say that, um, looking back on it, the weight gain, the fatigue, I remember I looked back at my, I'm going to write a book one day. It's going to be called, I'm not going to tell you the title. What in the world will you call this book? It's got to have like, (laughs) but I was like, I'm going to keep all of these records so that I can, you know, track it. Right. And in, when I was 13, I looked back and I was like, what were my common complaints? And they were joint pain, fatigue, and fevers are my three complaints when I was getting diagnosed with thyroid condition and the PCOS. It was like the, I just kept on complaining the joint pain. And they were like, you're growing, you're growing. I'm like, no, I feel like I have the flu every day, every day. And they were like, you're growing, it's growing pains. I'm like, I'm not that tall. Like I'm five, five on a good day. You know what I mean? Like it's not growing pain. <laughs> like There's something wrong here. Yeah. So that's what I was getting diagnosed with originally. And that was definitely when I believe I had acute Lyme disease. Um, I don't ever remember. I don't ever remember like specifically getting bit by a tick. I know I've had like like, I don't remember getting bit by a tick and then coming down with symptoms. I know that I've had ticks before on me because I lived in Shingle Springs and Marin County and like all these places. So, um, but yeah, I don't ever, ever remember getting like a tick and a bullseye rash and then like symptoms right afterwards. Well, in California, where you were living, uh, right. Kind of not far from Lake Tahoe, you said, yeah, Is there much discussion about Lyme. I mean, if you're outside, oh, not at all. Time. No, not at all. I mean, people tell me they're like, so I have been all around the world. I had never been to the East coast until I had my endometriosis surgery in September, which we'll probably get into later. But, um, I was like, I've never been to the East coast. They're like, you can't have Lyme disease. I was like, fun fact. I literally tested positive CDC positive for Rocky mountain smart fever, Bartonella and Lyme. And then Babesia later on when I was treating. So you're telling me somehow I magically have all of these things but I can't have them because I live in California. 
So that's why I'm, I'm just like, this is, this is backwards, but that's for another day. <laughs> it is backwards. Yeah, I, I know. And so you got, when you had your diagnosis, um, I mean, how many doctors did you go through? And I'm sure it's hard to kind of figure out because between like getting all the yeah. misdiagnoses, but how many doctors do you think you went through until you did get that diagnosis? Yeah. Oh my gosh. No, you're fine. No, you're fine. Oh, cutie. <laughs> um, no. So I, so like fast forward. So my parents get divorced. We moved to Marin County, go to a new high school, have a great experience at high school, still not feeling great, still feeling tired, still feeling all these things. I have like random things that come up in my health, like just random stuff, like always getting, um, always getting strep throat, always like having different like things that are coming up. Like people are like, Oh, you're always sick, et cetera, et cetera. We're like immune system pretty low, but we're not sure why. Then when I was 21, I had a second cleft brachial cyst. It was like a huge cyst. It was like the size of my surgeon's fist removed from my neck at Stanford and just randomly popped out of nowhere. And apparently you can like, it's a cyst that, or there's a pocket in your lymph nodes and randomly you can get a virus or whatever and it'll just grow. Don't ask me how. So it grew within like three months. It was literally huge. And then, so that was like 21 move back home, move in with my boyfriend, now husband, we are living together and I'm like having a lot of psychological stuff come up. We had lost seven people in two and a half years to either like death, suicide, overdose. And these deaths brought up a lot of my own childhood trauma that I had shoved down. And I remember feeling so disembodied, panicked, anxious, depressed. And like on top of that, just like wild heart palpitations, like just wild stuff. Found a trauma coach, found a somatic body worker that I still work with to this day that changed my life. I would not be here without them. Um, and then got a big girl job after I graduated college, <laughs> thought I wanted to be a sports agent, thought I wanted to be the next Aaron Andrews when I graduated college. So not sure how we shifted from teacher to that, but that's how we were. <laughs> and then, um, yep. Okay. So sports agent. then I moved home, started getting into the supply chain. I like became a buyer for, do you guys know Amy's kitchen? They're like the frozen food. Yeah. I've heard of it. Yeah. 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 So they're out of Petaluma. So was a buyer for them for a couple of years. And then I was like, you know what, this is not what I want to be doing. I want to be in nonprofit or like helping. So then I went to a big nonprofit up here. That was a food bank, put on a huge event. Like we raised $800,000 in one night, which previously they only had raised, like, I think $500,000 in this one night. And I was heading this event really stressful. My husband and I were getting married in June. This event was in end of April, I had my bachelor party, all these things for six months sober. And I crashed like from January to June. I remember being so sick, so tired, like something was off. And I went to a naturopath in town. She's like, and I, Oh, I started getting these body rashes all over. And I had had them before in college and they told me that I had scabies and they put me on this like pesticide. I don't know if anyone's ever had scabies before, but they put, they give you this like ointment. That's literally a pesticide that you should put all over your body. So I've done that twice at this point because multiple times in college, I would have this like rash and they're like, Oh, you have scabies again. I'm like, I don't have, I don't have scabies. You guys, 
because it, it never went away after I did this like pesticide on my body. So move home, go to this naturopathic doctor. Mind you, I've seen many a doctors at this point, probably up until this point, like between like naturopathic doctors and also, you know, like medical doctors, probably like 15 or 20. Go to this naturopath. She's like, I want to test you for a co-infection of Lyme disease. She's like, I don't think you have it because you're healthy. I was a bar instructor, like Pilates bar. I also cycled. So I would literally wake up, teach a 6 a.m. bar class, go to work, come home from work, go to a spin class and keep on going. Mind you, I was like feeling I was going to pass out in these classes, heart palpitations, all this crazy pot stuff showing up. Right. But I was like, oh, it's just the class. I'm just overexerting myself, you know? go to this doctor. She's like, you're fine. You're a bar instructor. You're so healthy. You look beautiful. It's going to be great. Like you don't have Lyme disease. And I looked at her and I said, can you run the whole panel? And she's like, no, there's no way. And I was like, if it comes back negative, then you could, then we can talk about me being hypochondriac. But if it comes back positive, then we can talk about the next steps. And she was like, so against it. Cause obviously hygienics is so expensive to freaking run, which is a whole other thing. And she's like, yep. Okay. Let's run it. (laughs) Doesn't call me when I get my results back. It's like two, two weeks. We're like three weeks before our wedding in June. And I'm like thinking, I'm like, gosh, I haven't heard from Marcia call her back. Oh no, no. I got an email that said, Hey, Allie, call me so we can talk about your treatment plan. And I was like, treatment plan for what, (laughs) for what you don't think I have Lyme disease. There's no way. So I call her and I'm like, treatment plan for what? She's like, Oh, you have a couple co-infections of Lyme disease. You also have Lyme disease. I'm like, what? And then I just remember, I keep on asking, like, I'm so sorry. Can you repeat that? Because you were so adamant that I did not have this. And she was like, yep, this is, this is what you have. She's like, I'm going to put you on biocidin, which anyone knows biocidin. It's like, literally take it under the tongue. I was like, okay. So I had a friend that had got diagnosed with Lyme in call at the end of college. And I remember calling her and being like, what are you supposed to do? Cause I was so distraught. I did not know where to turn to. I did not know anyone that was close to me that had Lyme disease or had been diagnosed with it. I was like, what, what do you do next? And, um, I went to the naturopath. She was like, we're going to put you on biocidin. I did it for like three days. I was like, this does not work. And then I started looking for a Lyme, Lyme literate doctor that was a whole nother can of worms. As you can imagine, we're like three weeks before our wedding, looking all over the Bay area for who's the best Lyme doctor. We went to five doctors. One of them said, I don't think it's that bad. You don't have it that bad. I think it's fine. The other ones were just like dismissive too, or they wanted to put me on like wild things. And I found a doctor in Marin and yeah, I, I, I think Lyme doctors, um, yeah, I mean, I don't even know where to go with this part of the story. Well, let's, let's, let's unpack it a little bit. So 
you, you now have a diagnosis, right? You've been sick for many years. Uh, you take this test. And um, when, you, when you get the call from the doctor to discuss your treatment plan, you discover that you have Lyme disease and you have a number of different co-infections. So first, let's, let's focus on that. What was your reaction to getting a diagnosis? Um, did this sound like it was the answer to all of the riddles that you had to deal with during the course of a large section of your life, or was it something that caused you to doubt whether or not, you know, it was a recent infection? It was just something new that was happening. I think that I felt really affirmed. Not, I think I know that I felt really affirmed. I remember feeling panicked and then feeling like this makes a lot of sense. This makes a lot of sense. Um, and just then anger because it was chronic. She's like, you have chronic. So like these strands are showing up a little bit differently than how it would be if it was acute, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I just felt like sad for that 13 year old Allie that could have, you know, gotten ahead of it and not had to deal with it for, you know, at this point too, I was fainting really wildly. Um, I remember being on the freeway talking to my best friend. My heart was all of a sudden just out of nowhere racing rapidly and being like, this is where I am on the freeway if I pass out. Like scary stuff because the POTS that I was later diagnosed with at Stanford was insane, was insane. Like that part was definitely scary. So when you were, when you were, looking for doctors, what mm-hmm. is it that you are looking for? Meaning you said you, you wanted a Lyme literate doctor and mm-hmm. we're, we're going to unpack that in a minute. Uh, and you said you interviewed five different doctors. So what was it that you were looking for that you weren't finding that caused you to move from doctor to doctor? I was looking for logic, <laughs> which I did not really find in a lot of them. Um, I think most Lyme doctors will throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. And it is devastating that that's how Lyme doctors work. Um, well, what, what do you mean by that? Let's, let's talk about that. When yeah. you throw spaghetti at the wall, are you, are, you, are you suggesting that they were a little ambivalent because Lyme is a challenging disease and we Honestly, want- Yeah. I think that because it's not recognized through mainstream medicine at this point, you have these doctors that then specialize in Lyme disease and these doctors, they will take advantage of people, which is, which was my case. You know, I sat in an IV room for nine and a half months. I quit my job. I got so sick. I had a port put in my chest. I was sitting in this IV room for six to eight hours a day, three to four times a week, trying everything under the sun besides stem cell. Literally, you name it, I've tried it. All the supplements, all the tinctures, all of the IVs that were being flown in from Germany, all of these different places, the neural therapy, the you know feedback, the this, the that, the like all of these things, the Myers, the glutathione, like all of it. Um, and it made me sicker. And I think that, you know, there are, I think these doctors are in my experience, let me just talk about my experience is that the doctor that I ended up going with was like, well, let's just try this. Let's try this. Let's try this. Let's try this, you know, all of these different things. And it made, it made me worse. Like I, I had an infection in my port and was in the emergency room. And that's when I was like, there has to be another way because 
yeah, I think that because there's no specific way of going about treating Lyme in mainstream, that you have these doctors that are all good intentioned, right, to help out people that have chronic Lyme disease, but then they don't, like they can tank their, their clients pretty quickly sitting in an IV room or trying all these supplements. So let's, let's, let's walk back a little bit to the point where you were looking for a doctor. I want to get, a, I want to get a handle on what you were looking for first. We'll talk about how they failed you in a minute, but let's talk, yeah. talk about what you were looking for at the stage where you have your diagnosis, you want to, you want to find somebody who's going to help you. And mm-hmm. I, I'm more interested in, in, in your mindset at that point about what you wanted before you ultimately came to settle on working with the doctor yeah. or doctors that failed you. So g- give me, give me that. Yeah. I mean, I did want logic. I was so new to Lyme disease and co-infections and how everything. So I wanted people to explain it to me. And I felt like, um, what I was looking for was someone that I resonated with someone that like I intuitively kind of connected with and was like, okay, I know that they can get me either into remission or cured like at the time. Right. And so that's what I was looking for. Okay. So you're looking for somebody that you could connect with emotionally Mm -hmm. and spiritually. You're looking for someone who would be able to have a, have a partnership with you where they were giving you instruction or giving you information so that you could understand where your options were. And you could then make a decision about how to exercise your options. And you were looking for someone who would be listening to you so that when your body was giving you signals, you could pass that on to the doctor and the doctor would then use that as part of the process of helping you to develop your treatment plan. That's what you're looking for. And you didn't find that with the first four doctors that you interviewed, but you believe you found that with the fifth doctor, right? So talk to us about your now experience with the doctor you selected. And do you believe that that doctor was going to be the one that was going to get you into remission or to get you to a place where you were having a better experience? Or did you believe that this was going to be one of a number of different people you were going to have to work with in building a team to ultimately help you to to heal? Yeah. So when I met him and his group of people that worked at the office or group of doctors that worked at the office, I was like, oh, this guy can, this guy know what he's talking about and he can get me to remission. Um, And so I felt comfortable and the things that he was saying, the way that he was describing how different co-infections show up on your body with the rash or the scratches or like all these different things. I was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Like I'm understanding what you're saying. Um, Also, I think that because there's not a lot of information out there, I was really naive to the fact that I needed to dig a little bit more. Like what I knew going into this was that you need a Lyme literate doctor. So I didn't know specifically, like, what do you need to look for with a Lyme literate doctor? Right. Um, so it was really me going off of intuition, what I'd heard, you need a Lyme literate doctor and whether or not what he was saying made logical sense to me about how co-infections show up or how we can treat this or X, Y, and Z. And, you know, to be honest, like he, the first thing he put me on was LDI and LDN and I did it. And it's describe what that is. What is it? It's low dose immunotherapy and low dose naltrexone. And I did both of them. I did, we were like teetering one, on one day and then the other on the other day. And I did it for two days and I was tanked. Like, I will tell people, I'm like, it almost killed me is what it felt like. 
I remember, and I remember him saying, he's like, you know, if this really tanks you, then we know that you have active infection right now is what he was saying. So I remember calling him. I remember leaving work, laying on the grass <laughs> on my lunch break. Cause I was so tired. I was like, I cannot move like laying on the grass and being like, what's next? Because I am not okay. Like this is, I can't do this. This is not okay. Okay. So let's pause there for a second. So, you know, find this doctor who intuitively you believe is going to be my guy. He's going to check off all the boxes for you, right? Yeah. Yep. He, um, this doctor was going to be able to give you the information that you needed to make decisions. This doctor was going to allow you to um, read your body and give information to the doctor. This doctor was going to allow you to play a role in deciding what treatment you're going to take. Um, now, when you were working with this doctor, did you talk to the doctor about treating the whole person or did this doctor talk to you about treating the whole person? Meaning, was he talking about treating you spiritually and, and treating you emotionally and treating you physically? Or was this just, hey, you have this illness, you have this disease. By the way, you had a whole bunch of different um, infections, right? So you had this, uh, this multi-infection. Um, how did you guys talk about treating the various elements of Allie? Yeah. And how did you talk about treating the various elements of the different diseases that you had been harboring for well over a decade? Yeah, so definitely. There was like the spiritual aspect, the emotional aspect. There was also like a lady that was there that did the biofeedback or the bioresonance. I can't remember the, the biofeedback. And then also I definitely did feel supported like spiritually for sure. Um, we, yeah, I definitely did feel supported spiritually. Um, they also did ketamine IVs as well, um, was something that they were saying that could help just with the reprogramming of your brain from having the chronic way of like how your brain has been programmed to flipping that script. Um, so, Aliyah, I'm, so, I'm starting to lose track a little bit here of the chronology, right? So when, when oh, you, yeah. you, you started with the uh, LDI and the LDN, right? And and you had that crash. Now, I'm trying to get a sense of what was happening before you started that element of your therapy, meaning were you supported spiritually and emotionally before you started that? Meaning did the doctor say to you, hey, you, you know, what likely happened here, what likely caused you to suffer your, your, your chronic illness is that you were suffering from uh, from you were suffering spiritually and emotionally and probably physically that you were in, that that you were yeah. your, your immune yeah. system was not capable of protecting you from these diseases yeah. that you have been harboring for decades and as a result we have to prepare you yeah. for this before we begin to attack it or was it let's just attack it first. He definitely asked all those questions. He was the one that told me about how, you know, when you have a traumatic incident, your Lyme can go from active to, or from dormant to active, how it hides in your bone and your lymph and your skin and all this stuff. And so, you know, if you had this big event and you're getting married and you're under all this stress, this can also bring out these active infections. Then he was asking about like, am I seeing someone right now that can support me emotionally, such as a therapist, et cetera. And I had been still do to this day. So I was definitely being supported with my emotions, therapy, past trauma, working on that simultaneously before I went into treating, going into active treatment. Does that answer so, your question? Yes. Yeah, so it sounds like, it sounds like this doctor was taking the approach where 
the entire alley had to be treated spiritually, yes. emotionally, and physically. Okay. 100%. So now let's talk about the physical, the physical treatment, right? So now you're, now you're being, now you're being given um, IV. Did the doctor prepare you physically? Meaning, did you talk about detoxing? Did you talk about getting your body ready to deal with Herxing, did you did you did you go through that conversation as well while you were being supported spiritually and emotionally in the other ways that um, the 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 entire alley needed to be supported? Yeah, so they definitely did mention it, and they had me on this. I can't even remember the supplements that were helping with detox and lymph drainage, et cetera, that I was taking orally. Was I doing enemas and sauna and any of that? No, I was not. So I was not opening up my pathways that way. So when I did, so I did the the two days of LDN was like, what the hell? This is, this is not okay. And then he said, I need you to give me two and a half months. I need you to take take, like a leave of absence for two and a half months. And we're going to hit this aggressively. We're going to, you're going to be in the IV room. And during that time, I was still not detoxing that much. I was like in the sauna, maybe two to three times a week, maybe two times a week on a good week. Um, wasn't doing like colonics or enema or anything else, dry brushing, et cetera. And so I sat in the IV room, was getting it through my veins, was doing, you know, IV ozone, methyl blue, I can't even remember all the stuff because it was so much, but literally everything under the sun. And then my, yeah. So give me, you you said you wanted to work with a doctor that would support you logically, meaning the doctor would outline for you what you were doing and why you were doing it. And it was something you have to understand before you were going to go forward with it. Yeah. So before the doctor started using the the low dose naltrexone and then asked you to take a leave of absence from work and, and essentially turn this into your, you know, your career for this window of time. Did you, uh, did you talk with the doctor or the doctor talked with you about why you were doing this and what portions of your uh, infections or co-infections you were treating at that moment? Yes, he did. So what, what, what did, what did the doctor say to you to cause you to logically believe that what he was recommending was the path you should take? He said that, you know, if we hit this, if we hit like Babesia and Bartonella for six weeks, you should be feeling better. Or if we hit this other infection in another six weeks, you know, he had me on like a cycle of like certain medications, certain antibiotics, et cetera, cycling through. And yes. Yeah. So he was definitely telling me what to do and how it was affecting you know, the co-infections in the line. All right. Now, when, when it wasn't working, you said that you were, you were going through this process of, of taking all this medication and it wasn't working. Were you communicating with your doctor that it wasn't working and what impact were, were the input that you were given to your doctor having on your doctor pivoting in the treatment plan? Yeah. I mean, I was telling them, I was like, this is not working. I'm getting sicker. My veins blew out within two and a half weeks. So then I had a port put in my chest, which was an awful experience. And then, you know, we hit it hard and we were doing everything. And I was, you know, they were watching me. They were also taking blood work every couple of days to make sure that my liver, et cetera, was functioning. My liver was crashing. My kidney was crashing. And they were like, okay, this happens temporarily, but like, we're going to pivot to this. And so they were definitely like 
to be honest, I got so sick that I feel like I put a lot of my trust in my doctors. And this is the lesson that the universe kept on teaching me over and over again at this point is that you have to still advocate for yourself, even if you trust your doctors, right? You still have to show up and say, this is not working. Something needs to shift immediately because my lab work is showing worse. Like my kidney and liver, I was getting shocking pains in the middle of the night in my liver. Like that would wake me up screaming. Like it was really bad. And, um, you know, then they were like, okay, we're going to do ketamine. Like it's, like you're getting depressed. We're going to do ketamine to try and like flip the script of like being in chronic illness and all of this stuff. We're going to do neural therapy. We're going to do the Frankenhauser shot because they worked really, they worked really closely with Dr. Klinghart. And they also worked really closely with the German, I forget the clinic, whatever the German clinic is. Infusio. Thank you. And so they worked really closely with these doctors over there. Like you know, one of the doctors that I was working with in the clinic is like a protege of, of Dr. Klinghart. So she was like, oh, we're going to do all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, but it's making me sicker. Like, it's actually not helping me. So how long did you stay with this first doctor or first medical group of doctors, uh, yeah. group of doctors uh, before leaving them? Nine and a half months. And why did you stay with them so long when you were getting sicker and sicker rather than pivoting away from them earlier? That is a great question. Looking back on it. I think my family, my husband was like, my therapist was like, is this working? (laughs) Do we need to move from this doctor? And, you know, I put a lot of belief in them. And when you're scared and you're panicked and you're sick and you have this chronic illness and you have a doctor that like finally hears how you're feeling, you have some like you feel like you have this connection with them, or at least I did. And so I was like, oh, they got this. They've had, and I remember just asking them all the time, like, do you have other people in my position that have gotten out of this and feel better? And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, and like, you believe that. So when my turning point, when my breaking point was, was when I came down with an infection in my port and was going into sepsis and was in the emergency room. And I was like, there has to be another way because this is, so awful. There's like, there has to be another way. So you, you're in a place where you had to believe that your treatment would work for it to work, right? You found someone who sort of checked off all the boxes after being very thorough about interviewing various people and you wanted to be coachable, right? You wanted to do what you believed should be done and you wanted to dedicate yourself toward to healing and you stayed with them, right? Yep. Finally, finally, you got to the point where you're in, you're in an ER and you can see how badly this is going and you have the moonstruck moment where you're like, all right, I got to get out of here, right? I got the slap yeah. in the face. The universe has slapped me. I have to move on. Yep. Um, where do you move on to and what lessons did you take from the first nine months that allowed you to now pivot over to a different set of doctors and have a better experience? Yeah. So I started working with the Heal Hive um, for B Venom Therapy. And they have their own doctor, uh, Dr. Erica Lehman in Los Angeles. And the reason why I pivoted was because I was researching bee venom therapy, looked into it more, looked at the data and the science behind bee venom therapy. And when you look at bee venom therapy against the Lyme spirochetes and co-infections versus, you know, doxycycline, 
all of these other antibiotics, B venom therapy is the only thing that does not leave anything else behind because it actually kills the biofilm, which is around the spirochete, which makes Lyme disease chronic. So that's where I was like, oh, this actually makes sense to me. Like, this is the thing that, you know, I was at this point where I was just like, there's nothing else. I was on every single antibiotic orally through my IV was doing it all. The only thing that I did not do was I did not go to Germany and do stem cell. Okay. So let's, before we leave your nine month window where you left the, um, the doctor, yeah. the landlord doctor that you decided to work with, give us a list of all of the different therapies that you did, literally everyone that you can remember. Honestly, I like need to send you for the show notes to write it down because there are so many that I cannot even like, I need to go back and look, but I, if you name them off, like I have, people will come to me like, did you try this? I'm like, yep, yep. I've literally tried it all besides stem cell, like everything out there, every IV out there, every protocol for supplements out there. I was on 70 supplements a day. So Ali, and, and, and I appreciate you sending us the information for the show notes and we'll certainly add them to the show notes, but just, just off the top of your head, mm-hmm. which of the therapies yeah. Did so off, yeah, off the top of that, my head. Yeah. That, 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 you know, that stand out the most. Yeah. You might have to help me here because okay. it's been a while since being in the IVM. So I was on doxycycline. I was on rifampin and Invance for antibiotics. Then I remember doing, so that was just in one day, I would get those three antibiotics through my IV. Then I was on glutathione, Myers cocktail, methyl blue. Um, what's it when you do like the 10 pass ozone where the blood comes out, all of that. Um, I was on, why can't NAD? Um, what else am I How did you react to the NAD? I could not tell you. I was so tanked that I think it all, like, I think the only thing that I ever felt good on was a B12 shot. Okay. <laughs> so, so for this nine months, you just, you didn't see any improvement. You were just getting sicker and sicker and you didn't yeah. know if it was the disease progressing exactly, or whether or not it was the, the therapies that you were using that were, were causing you to suffer. You yeah. just did not. And I was told like, okay, when you start hitting this infection and it becomes active, it can tank you. It can make you worse before it makes you better, which I'm like, I've heard that so many times. Okay. You know, like I get that. Right. So, um, yeah, I was like, okay. So your nine month experience in your view did not give you any improvement at all. At the end of nine months, you were just sicker than you were when you began. the. I was sick as a dog. I remember sitting on my couch, not moving. My mom was like, something is wrong with you. Like I called her over. She's like, something is wrong with you. And I literally had the beginning of sepsis in my port. Like I had my sunglasses on. I had my hat on. We walked in the emergency room. They were like, what's going on? Like it was, yeah, no, it was awful. So why do you think this medical, well, actually, let me ask a question. How did this medical practice fail you? Meaning looking back at, you know, Carrie asked you to look at the, at the, at the young alley. I'm now asking you to look at the alley that was going through that nine month window. How was alley failed by that medical practice? I think that, you know, I take partial credit for it, that I wasn't I definitely was naive going into this. I did not, I've never heard of Lyme disease before getting my diagnosis. I was eager to get better, right? So I take credit that I was like so eager once again, as Carrie and I were talking, like putting on that warrior, foraging through, even if it's hard. I'm like, I kept on just telling myself, you've been through harder things in your life. Like 
this is going to turn around just like the rest of your life has. And so that was my own thing, right? I just want to make that clear because I think I don't want to, it's not all the doctors. There's, there's me. No, no, and, yeah. and, and we're going to talk about mindset in a minute, but I, I yeah. do want to talk yeah. about. So the way the that they, yeah, I think the way that the doctors failed me was they kept on throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what stick. And I remember my doctor actually saying that, like, we're just going to throw everything at you. We're going to see what works and what doesn't. And my experience with most Lyme doctors is that's what they do. They will tax you out until they're like, okay, let's pivot and like, try this and try this. And what's the thing that's like making you, you know, a couple degrees higher or a couple degrees better. Um, so yeah. Ali, so, so I'm, I'm hearing, I'm hearing you voice a general criticism about Lyme doctors. And I think we have to unpack that so we can figure out how to best interact with doctors. Right. So you, you did say that your mindset was I will trust a doctor because that's what we're supposed to do, right? So there is this, you know, what we call here at Tech Bootcamp, the industrial medical complex, where they've conditioned us to believe that if we do what they tell them to do, we'll get better. And if we don't do what they tell us to do, we're not going to get better, right? If we take the pill they want us to take, we'll get better. And if we don't take the pill, right? So, so you have that mindset first, right? But then we, you know, you did talk a little bit about this warrior mindset, right? And it's one of the things that we always talk about here at Tick Boot Camp. Matt very often likes to call everybody a Lyme warrior, right? And I cringe a little bit at that concept of warrior for a lot of different reasons. And you're giving me a new reason, right? One of the reasons why I'm, I cringe when I hear the term Lyme warrior is I think that mindset is putting you in fight or flight, which means your body can't heal, right? If you're fighting, you're just, you're just not going to be able to heal. So you're not in a healing mode. But now you're actually giving us another insight here, which is, if you're warrior, if you're in this warrior mindset, you're just going to fight through it, right? You're going to be in the suck it up mindset. You're going to be, you know, um, just essentially allowing yourself to be abused because that's part of what you have to accept in order to be able to get better. Is that where you are? Yeah, for sure. I think that, you know, talking about childhood and all of those kind of preconceived notions about how you just suck it up and you get through because it's going to turn itself around. And, you know, every experience in my life, it's turned itself around, but it's like that point of almost needing to control what you can't control. Right. 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 So let, let's unpack another piece. We uh, recently, Matt and I interviewed Dr. Richard Horowitz, the famous Lyme doctor, one of the things that he shared with us is that one third of all of his female Lyme disease patients had been the victim of sexual abuse. Yeah, one thousand percent. He said that that the that 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 challenge does create immunosuppressive or immunodestructive events, which makes it more likely that you'll get sick. But I now want to explore it from the standpoint of you in this nine-month window. We have this. We have this this kid who went through this horrific series of events that has both my heart and Carrie's heart broken as, as parents. Um, and now you're in this nine month window. Do you believe that the trauma that you suffered put you in a position where you were unable to get out of the abusive environment that you were in for that nine months that you were treating with this medical practice? Yeah, for sure. And I think too, is that, you know, the more that I learn about trauma, becoming a certified trauma coach, it's like, your body remembers everything, even if your mind does not. Right. So even if there's been multiple times where I've had memories come up of other things that have happened in my childhood that I forgot. And it's like, that puts you at a disadvantage as a woman, as an individual, because your immune system is going to be depleted because your nervous system is actually rewired from the trauma that you've been through. So for example, with like endometriosis, I got an endometriosis diagnosis 
which is a whole nother story about doctors and was misdiagnosed for 10 years, literally had an IUD put in me and my uterus was like this. So it got lodged in my side of my uterus and just had surgery in September because I was misdiagnosed for so long. And it's like 70% of women that have endometriosis have been either sexually assaulted, molested and, or raped. That's a high percentage. That's a really, that's not like one out of, you know, I mean, that's not one out of 10, that's seven out of 10 women that have endo. So Ali, and I do want to, I do want to talk with you more about endo because that's a big issue in the Lyme community as well. And it's something that we dealt with. At yeah. But getting but back talk, to your question about, that for, yeah, yeah. Getting back, yes, of course. I mean, I have been working with a therapist for eight years on the trauma and all of that and unpacking it. And there was definitely that point of, I think I was so used to, yeah, I was triggered the whole time. I was triggered being in there. My nervous system was completely whacked out, especially when you're killing an infection, it crosses the blood brain barrier. So you're even more whacked out. Right. And 100%, I think that that was why I stayed. And they were so convincing too. They're so convincing, like, Oh no, this is normal. This is how it happens. You have to get worse before you get better. Let's try ketamine. Let's try all these other things to help your mindset and your mind shift out of this. So is there another piece of the traumatic experience that led you to believe that you weren't entitled to heal and that's why you weren't pivoting away from these doctors? Yeah, totally. I think that, you know, it's interesting if that's the, if someone asked me like, what's the, what's the lesson that the universe keeps on putting on your heart that you have to keep on learning over and over again? It's like, that you're good enough to experience relief and freedom. And I think like I was telling my friend this the other day is like my tolerance for good is very small. My tolerance for bad is really high. So when you've been traumatized, you've gone through developmental trauma, PTSD, you're you will start to reenact these things over and over again to try to flush them out. Right. And so I think that this for sure could have been a reenactment of me not being good enough, me thinking that I need to stay in this cycle of trauma and abuse and hardship. So now let's look at the doctors again, right? Because one of the things that I criticize doctors for all the time, at least in my legal practice is they hold on to patients too long, right? They have a modality of treatment, they, they get their patient to maximum medical improvement. Yeah. They hold on to them and they continue to treat them, right? Because a medical practice is also a business, right? Mm-hmm. So do you think you were victimized by this practice who wanted to hold on to you longer? Oh, yeah. That you were, you were someone who was paying yeah. them. Yep. And that what they should have done is they should have said to you, hey, Allie, we've done as much as we can do for you. And we need to recommend that you work with someone else that you should have been referred out to another medical practice. 100%. I think that they also did figure out that my parents had money behind them. And so we spent $150,000 out of pocket in nine and a half months. So let's talk about now pivoting over from a Lyme literate medical doctor and a Lyme literate medical practice to now um, the heel hive. Um, yeah. How did you how did you make that pivot, and what research did you do when you made the decision to leave traditional medicine and move over to an alternative therapy? Yeah. 
So I really love the founder story of the Heel Hive, Brooke story of how she went from, you know, being awfully chronically ill to not struggling with Lyme at all. It's not showing up positive at all. And like, you know, (laughs) most people that are in remission would say like, okay, um, you just have to avoid red meat and alcohol and all of these things. And then you can stay in remission. And her whole thing was like, I can eat whatever I want. And I am still, you know, there's no side effects. And that was the the freedom that I wanted in my life. Was so how, that. Did you, how did you find Brooke? I found Brooke on, I found Brooke, Brooke on Instagram. Yep. I found Brooke on Instagram. And then I signed up for their boot camp. And it was the first time that they were doing a digital academy because it was right when the pandemic hit. And it was right after I was in the emergency room with the infection in my port. And I was going through the Heal Life Academy, which was five months. And then also my parents were like, let's give it one more shot. And can you go to Stanford and just get all these tests run? And maybe there's something else going on. So I was simultaneously getting tests run at Stanford for everything else. So what testing we do at Stanford and what feedback did you get from the testing at Stanford? Um, so I was with like a specialized, I forget what it's called, a specialized doctor where they work with like um, cases where they can't like specify one thing. So we were looking, we were with a variety of different um, specialists, right? Like this doctor was my primary doctor. And then I was looking at different things. So we were in the dysautonomia group. I was diagnosed with POTS, um, did the tilt table test, all of that. Um, and then we moved on to cardio and I was having, cause I was having heart problems. And then we moved on to, uh, oh my gosh, neurology just to see my brain and everything. And what I was diagnosed with was low grade seizures. I was having fevers every single night that ranged from 99 to 101 degrees. I was diagnosed with mild to severe POTS. And then I was diagnosed with like some type of like re- reverb or something in my heart that was happening. Um, and they wanted to put me on five different medications and they were like, this is what you need to treat it. And I was just like, I've done this before. I don't want to do this. So Ali, when you, when you were treating with the doctors at Stanford and they were giving you all of these symptomatic diagnoses, um, was anyone tying all of these different diagnoses to Lyme disease? And were you pushing them to see the connection between your neurological, your 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 cardiac, and your uh, and your POTS, all as uh, traditional and classic uh, Lyme disease symptoms. Yeah, I was. I was like, well, couldn't this all be tied to Lyme? And they were like, there's no way. And I had like one of the like I went to the best doctors at Stanford, right? Not shitting on Stanford. Sorry for my language, but um, I kept on saying like this, these are all symptoms of POTS. Like I was even showing positive for RA and like different things were coming up and they were like, no, you've sat in an IV room and you've done nine and a half months of antibiotics alley. If you had Lyme, it would have killed off anything. I'm like, but you don't get it. But like, this is how it hides in your body and it can go into a non-dormant state. Like what, you know, they're like, no, that's actually not true. And I was literally showing them all of my other testing that I had done, trying to help them figure it out. Right. And that's when I was just kind of lost my hope in them and was like, you know what, I'm not going on this medication. What they also didn't realize was that we were in a high, 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 high mold home. We bought a brand new home. It was two months old, 
two months old, right? So everyone out there that thinks a new build doesn't have mold in it. Allie, just let's pause there for a second. When you say we, you and your husband bought a new yes. home and it was yes. and it was full of mold. Full of mold. How'd you discover that? So I was having these seizures and Brooke was like, you need to test your home. And I was like, Brooke, there's no way you're high. Like we, it's a brand new home. I don't need to test my home for mold. She's like, just test it. And then we can, you know, figure it out. Came back with really high levels. And because we had just bought it, we hired lawyers and experts to come in and test the house. And these experts have, you know, our lawyer was like, we're going to get this top expert that's going to come in so we can take your builder to trial. And this expert came in and he was like, I've been doing this for 30 years. He's like, I go into homes all the time, new homes, old homes that have high mold. He's like, I have never seen this high of mold in my 30 years of doing this. Like it was off the charts. And that's also the thing that I didn't, that Stanford wasn't connecting. is like, could this mold poisoning, could my fevers be in these low grade seizures be tied to the fact that I'm in a high mold home? They're like, no, because you would feel immediately better when you left the home. So the, so the doctors that you were treating with at Stanford did not test you for mold. They only told you that if you were not in the mold environment, that you would not have any symptoms from the mold. Right. They're like, right, so let's, let's build that. So you're on these parallel paths. We built out one part of the path, which is you're at Stanford. They're giving you tests. They're giving you all kinds of diagnoses. They want you to go on medication, which, and they are refusing to connect your, your chronic Lyme disease symptoms to chronic Lyme disease, right? But let's talk about the other path that you're on. You said that you were working with the Hill Hive and Dr. Erica Lehman. So w- what was going on at the same time that you were going to Stanford with the Heel Hive and, and Dr. Lehman? Yeah. So with the Heel Hive, they were having me test because it's like their whole motto is test, not guess, which I appreciate because a lot of people guess. Um, and then we were learning about Lyme. We were learning about the intricacies of it. We were doing breath work practices, trying to tone your polyvagus nerves, like all of these things that are really important and instrumental in healing. And so that's, you know, it was a five months. So I was working with Stanford for like two out of the five months, but Brooke found so many things that like Stanford couldn't find. Okay. So let's talk about that. So let's talk about the test, not guess philosophy. What Mm -hmm. testing did you do so you could stop guessing at what therapies you should be using? Yeah. So there's a whole list of tests that you do with the heel hive that is confidential that I, that is intellectual property. Okay. And did you do any of those types of tests when you were working with the Lyme literate medical doctor for the nine months that you did not make any improvement? There were a couple, like just the, the CDC, um, like Lyme tests, but no, I mean, there, there's so many tests on there that I have never even heard about until I went through the heel hive. Okay. So, so you've now spent $150,000 on your treatment with the Lyme literate medical practice. You, how much money did your, you and your family have to spend on the treatment at Stanford? Uh, I think a lot of it was covered by insurance. Okay. Yeah. And now you're going through the, through the heel high process. You're testing, not guessing. And what information are you getting through the testing that you weren't able to get either from the Stanford testing or from the testing that you were doing at the Lyme literate medical practice? Mold, severe mold poisoning, um, pernicious anemia and borderline PA. What's, what's PA? Pernicious anemia. It's a deadly type of anemia. Okay. Um, what else was I getting? Oh, I also at the time had got off birth control and that's 
when a lot of my symptoms were pointing to endometriosis. And then also, um, we were able to finally see how my hormones were looking not on birth control, which was that I was, I went to an IVF doctor and she had diagnosed me with premature ovarian failure. Okay. So you were testing for mold, for anemia and for, and your hormones were being tested. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, when you receive this information about the mold, the anemia and the, the hormone um, testing, how did you change or pivot from the treatment that you were doing before to do to doing the new treatment? And, and the second part of that is what role was Dr. Lehman playing in, in both the testing and the treatment process? Yeah. Dr. Lehman was there to run the labs and she's also just a big part of um, the heel hive, like, because, you know, it's important to have a doctor, but so I would have, I have had calls with her just to discuss like anything else that I'm needing support with. Um, so she's been really great, but I think, you know, the thing about working with Dr. Lehman too, is that I'm coming into it with such a different standpoint because I've been through working with Lyme doctors and like how I need to advocate for myself. So I'll, I'm more inclined to say like, actually, I don't want to try that, or I've tried that and it hasn't worked for me in the past, or I'm going to stick with this strategy. So I feel like I'm better able to advocate for myself for sure with that. Okay. So you're, because of the bad experiences that you had in the past, you're now in control of your, of your healing. Mm -hmm. You're now the, the captain or the owner of this team that you're building. And the team that you're building includes the folks at the Hill Hive and the folks um, at, at Dr. Lehman's office. Now, mm -hmm. is 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 the work that you're doing at Dr. Lehman's office just supporting the work that's done at the Hill Hive, or are you separately treating with Dr. Lehman? Meaning, are you visiting with no. Dr. Lehman, or is Dr. No, Lehman it's supporting the work. Yeah, it supports it supports the work that I'm doing at the Hill Hive. Okay, so yeah. now let's talk talk about the Hill Hive and what research did you do before you decided to go forward with the um, the work at the Hill Hive. Yeah, I did a lot of research around bee venom therapy, around, you know, how it's under a microscope and like the difference. I think that's like the biggest thing that really the all of the testing that they've done about bee venom therapy. Um, and then the reason why I decided to go with them is because the so the lab or sorry, the academy was five months. Right. So that was just knowledge, building up your knowledge. And then you have to be approved to sting. So that's not even like me stinging. That's just me learning all this knowledge. So when I went into it, I was like, you know what? If I do this for five months and gain more knowledge around Lyme disease, et cetera, I don't have to sting. That's always like when I get there. So that was my real reasoning for going to the heel hive was about just gaining more knowledge and learning more about bee venom therapy and seeing if it resonated at the end of it when I did get approved to sting like if it was going to work for me. So I kind of went into it like more open, open hearted about what the end result was going to be. So for the five months that you were studying in the heel hive Academy, were you doing anything else to support your body? And were you doing anything to treat your, uh, your Lyme disease? We were, I was doing, you know, you're learning about detox. So I was definitely doing detox like infrared sauna and, um, and enemas and other supportive detox, but, yeah. And then the, be based on my blood work, I was working with Brooke on like what best vitamins would help support that too. Okay. So this five months wasn't just a study period. This five months was a period where you were learning and you were applying various detox 
uh, modalities to, um, to your treatment. You are also going through a process of testing, which caused you to discover that you were living in a high mold environment, which of course we know is immunosuppressive um, and, and immune disrupting. Uh, you discovered that you had some issues with anemia. So you were dealing with, with iron or I guess other, other uh, treatments. And then of course you discovered that you had some issues with your hormones, which also triggered your understanding that you had issues with endometriosis, right? So we had a, a whole discovery process that happened during that five months where you weren't just learning about, uh, about B venom therapy, you were learning about how to manage your body and prepare your body and to detox your body so that you could go forward with now treating. Was your health improving during the five months that you were on this discovery and educational path um, yes. prior to doing any of this thing? For sure. Their nutrition okay. protocol was definitely something that helped set my body up for success and um, helped just a lot of things with like inflammation, et cetera. Okay. Um, and were you, were you doing anything to kill any of the, um, any of the bugs that you had in your body, meaning, uh, other than the nutritional issues that you were dealing with, the, the mold, the anemia, the hormones, um, the, um, all of the various detox, uh, the tools that you're using, were you doing anything to kill before you started stinging? Not at that time. No, because I didn't know that I had SIBO at that time. So no, yeah, okay. it was more getting myself prepped mindset, um, understanding. Also, we like, we're moving out of this brand new home. We are disclosing hundred pages of paperwork, working with lawyers to move out of this home and sell it. Um, so that was like taking up a lot of my time. Um, on top of that, we were going to an IV, we were going to multiple IVF doctors to try and do an egg retrieval, which didn't work because I didn't have any eggs. Um, so yeah, definitely. There was a lot other things going on at that time. So talk to us about how your health improved over that five month pre-stinging window. How did, how you were very, very sick before you started that. And then where were you after the five months of doing all of the different preparatory um, and detox yeah. protocols? I would say that my joint pain and my inflammation were the biggest things that improved because of the protocol that they have us on to prep us for the bee venom therapy. Um, I would say that... Yeah. I honestly feel like I was 40% better, um, by the time I even got approved to sting, which was pretty amazing. Cause I had never seen that much relief, um, at all. So yeah, I was definitely feeling a lot better and, you know, mold is huge part of that. Okay. So that, so if, if I were to ask you for a game changer that got you to that 40%, would it be getting out of the mold high mold environment? That was the game changer. I think it was a combination to be honest. I mean, the mold definitely, I wasn't having seizures every night. Um, so that was huge. <laughs> I mean, that alone like gives you inflammation in your body and just the stress on your nervous system in general. Um, yeah. So I would say, I would say the mold was a really big, big, big part of it. Okay. Now, do you, do you believe that prior to you and your husband moving into your new home that you were living in a moldy environment anyway? Yeah. I think that that might've been part of what triggered the Lyme as well. I mean, I think a lot of things triggered the Lyme at this point when I was, you know, three weeks before our wedding, but for sure, I think, you know, mold is, mold is scary. 
Now, when you're going through the five-month window prior to the stinging phase of working with the Heal Hive, were you also still working with your therapist to support you emotionally? Oh, yeah. Okay. So now you finally make a decision that you're going to sting with the Heal Hive. Um, mm -hmm. What caused you to believe that that was a next step for you in your healing journey? Yeah, I mean, everything that I learned from Brooke and the Heal Hive has been incredible. And honestly, they've, they've never let me down and they've found so many things that so many other doctors have missed. And so I was, had a lot of confidence in them and in myself and in the bees that this was, you know, what was going to heal me fully and not just put me in remission, but heal me. Um, so yeah, I just felt really confident in it. And, you know, I told myself too, is like, let's say I, you know, before I started stinging, I was like, you know, let's say I do it for two months or cause I wanted to put a, you know, time frame for myself. I was like, let's say I do it for two or three months and it's actually awful. And I feel sicker. Like then, then we should reevaluate. Right. And it didn't, it made me feel really good. Like after you get over the initial part of being stung, like I forget the rest of the day that I did a small treatment for my Lyme disease to help me heal. Okay. So uh, we've interviewed several folks who've worked with the Heal, Heal Hive and we've worked, interviewed many folks who have used bee venom therapy. Well, let me ask you about your particular decision now. What risks did you evaluate? Um, and, um, and how did you prepare yourself to offset the potential risks of going forward with uh, using bee venom therapy? Yeah. Well, one, the Yule Hive sets you up really well. Like that's why they do five months of, you know, knowledge and testing and all of these things so that you are set up for success. So I felt really comfortable that way, that if there was a risk of anaphylaxis, et cetera, that I would be taken care of. Obviously I had all of my safety protocol in place before I stung. Um, so for me, the risk was pretty small because of what I had been through before all of that before, you know, like I didn't want to go back to an IV room. I didn't want to go back to 70 supplements. I didn't want to go back to throwing spaghetti on the wall. And so it was like, my risk was pretty low going into it. And when you say the risk was low or are, do you believe that the risk was low or do you believe it was a risk worth taking because everything else had failed? I think the risk was low. Okay. Um, now, one of the things that I, I remembered when, before we actually interviewed the folks at, at the Heal Hive, um, we, had, we had watched a, a piece on Netflix. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and the piece on Netflix had sort of given the, you know, both sides of, of, um, of bee venom therapy. And one of the things that made me somewhat anxious about bee venom therapy was that uh, it appeared to be a potentially progressive um, uh, challenge, meaning you could go into anaphylaxis after using bee venom therapy for a year or two or three, even though you weren't initially allergic. Well, certainly that's the argument that was made by, uh, by the one expert who I think was from Duke University on uh, bee venom therapy. So well, what's your reaction to that? I mean, did you come across that piece before you made the decision to use bee venom therapy? And did you think that um, after reviewing that piece that perhaps there were some greater risks than you would initially thought? Yeah. So that documentary came out, um, I think after, or maybe right before I started stinging and I had been through the, the Academy and I just had all the knowledge around that, that I was like, I don't really feel, I feel like this guy actually didn't fully know everything to be honest. Um, and I had done, I had had a lot of knowledge around like why people go into anaphylaxis 
and how to mitigate that. Like, that's why we work so tirelessly with the heel hive so that that doesn't happen. Like they really do set you up for success. And that's my thing with Lyme and health is like, you need to be set up for success. Okay. So now why did you believe bee venom therapy was setting you up for success? And why was it different than anything else that you had researched or used uh, before that? Because it doesn't just put you in remission. It's like the only thing that will cure Lyme disease. And why is it the only thing that will cure Lyme disease? Because it actually attacks the biofilm that when you have chronic Lyme disease, you have biofilm around the Lyme spirochete and other co-infections. And most things don't attack the biofilm to actually get at the infection. So you will go into remission instead of actually being cured. Now, what steps did you take? Well, first of all, what is your understanding of why people go into anaphylaxis and what steps were you able to, um, what steps were you able to take through your training through the heel hive that led you to believe that that was not a risk uh, that you should be concerned about? Yeah. So most people go into anaphylaxis, like, because they, I think it's less than 1% of the population has a true anaphylaxis to bee venom therapy or to bees, to bee venom in general. Most people are allergic to antibiotics. There's a higher number of people that are allergic to antibiotics, but for me, it was, you know, you aren't addressing all these other things that could be putting your body into anaphylaxis, such as other autoimmune conditions or inflammation or mold or et cetera, that can actually create this reaction in your body. And so that's why I felt comfortable because we had addressed all of that before I even started stinging. And, you know, I have an EpiPen. I got all the things ready in case that happens, but I'm, you know, I don't believe that it'll happen. Okay. So talk to us now about the stinging process. What, what is the process like and what were your concerns before you had your first bee sting? Yeah. I mean, the process is pretty easy to be honest. My husband stings me and it's like, it's pretty easy, but, um, you know, we have a whole like setup on how we do it. And we have a little hive that we keep like a little mobile hive in the house. And it's, it's honestly pretty like comfortable. I don't know what else to say about it. It feels like, you know, before I, my first sting, my testing, um, is what they call it. And, um, I was definitely nervous because it's like, okay, you've done all these other hard things, but you're getting bit by, you know, you're getting stung by a bee. Like there is a definitely a little bit of pain to that. Um, but for me, it was like that pain that you feel for like maybe a couple minutes outweighs me being sick after the IV room, throwing up after the IV room, like laying on the couch, being couch ridden, you know, having a port in my chest, that's just painful. Like I'm a big hugger and that thing like did not want me to be able to hug anyone. So, you know, the, yeah, I just felt like I was like, okay, I can handle like two to five minutes of like stinging kind of pain. It's like a spicy pain. It's not like a. I don't know how to describe it, but it's a different type of pain. Well, spicy pain is a nice way of describing it. Yeah, so, it's like spicy is the only way I can say it. So um, how long after you began stinging, did you begin to get relief in addition to the 40% the relief that you had received by going through the detox and preparation protocol? Yeah, like the first month, month and a half, I was like, wow, I'm definitely feeling the brain fog lift, the... Um, more joint pain was gone. I was able to walk more and like not lay on the couch all day or like work from the couch. I was definitely able to like be back in my body because it started to feel safer. 
So let, let's talk about that. So when you say be back in your body, you, you, you shared with Carrie earlier that you were using different types of intoxicants and different ways of, of abandoning your body or removing yourself from the pain of your body. Uh, were you doing that all the way through the time that you started stinging or were you still? You yeah, know, I got doing... sober. Yeah, my husband and I got sober six months. Both of us got sober six months before we got married. So I was, you know, and I think that was a really big part of why I felt like I was really crashing with Lyme. I didn't share that part yet, but it's because I was sober and I couldn't escape my body. And so I knew that something was really off before we got married. And I think that was a really big part of it is that, you know, when I would feel like joint pain or all of these things, I would drink, right. I'd go out and drink. And because I was sober, I was like, oh, something is definitely wrong here. And so I was not using anything, you know, we're, we're 100% sober. We're not just California sober. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as, as New Yorkers are not entirely sure what California sober means, but uh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure it means not entirely sober. It's not, it's just, you don't drink essentially, but you do other things, but we're 100% sober. <laughs> <laughs> so, so California sober means no alcohol, but other intoxicants are still a part of your life. Yeah. Whereas, whereas sober in your view now. Sober, means- sober, which should just be sober. We don't need a California sober, but I feel like we have to now say that. So. <laughs> All right. So when you're working with the Lyme literate medical doctor, were you still using alcohol? No, I, so, cause I got really sick. I got diagnosed three weeks before our wedding and then got home from our honeymoon. Two weeks later, I was in the IV room. So we were sober, honeymoon, wedding, bachelorette parties, bridal shower, Okay. So now, um, talk to us about the progression of your, um, of your gains, um, as you began stinging. Yeah. I mean, I think just the inflammation was definitely big. I've always like carried, you know, 10 to 15 pounds, just extra of inflammation. I don't think it's fat. It's like literally inflammation from just all of the co-infections that definitely started to go down. Um, my memory, I've always had a really good memory of remembering people and places and faces and all of that, minus all the shit that I did in the IV room. But um, I think I blocked that just from my own memory. <laughs> um, but yeah, definitely my memory started to come back. I was able to work like outside of the house for my business. And that was really great. You know, instead of taking calls from like the couch or the bed, like I was able to be in my office. Um yeah, I feel like there was definitely really big gains that I wouldn't have been able to do if I was still treating with the other Lyme doctor. So how long have you been stinging? And um, and give us again the, the difference between where you were when you, when you first started stinging and where you are now. Yeah. So I first started stinging November 20... Oh my gosh. We're in 2022, right? So November yeah. 20... 20 is when I started stinging and I was stinging from then until my endometriosis surgery, which was in August. So I stopped stinging, um, to go into surgery. And then to be honest, I went rogue and I was like, my endometriosis surgery cured me. I don't have anything. I don't have Lyme disease. It's been endo this whole time. And then I had to work with Brooke to get reapproved and, you know, just make sure that everything was safe so that you are safe so that you, you know, that's why I really recommend going through the heel hive and not doing it on your own because they have so much freaking safety protocols in place. And so that you don't hit those roadblocks. Um, and then I just restarted stinging like a week ago. Okay. 
So why did you come back to Sting? Did you relapse uh, as a result of not having any treatment between the time that you stopped for your endometriosis surgery and now, or is there something else that happened that may have caused a relapse? Meaning, did you suffer another tick bite? Did you have some traumatic events or was it just um, not in remission at the time that you had stopped? Yeah, it just wasn't in remission. You know, I have three co-infections and Lyme and um, yeah, I just needed to keep on doing it. It was interesting after my endo surgery, which was such a huge relief, I was able to be like, oh, this is it. I'm good. I'm healed. It's been endo. And then things started to trickle back in the joint pain, the fatigue, like the cognitive stuff started to come back in. And so that's when I was like, okay, it's, you need to get back to it. So let's talk about the connection between endo and Lyme, right? We, um, we recently posted, um, I saw that. Um, okay. So Claire Dalton on our, on our page, who is, you know, who's, who's written extensively about endo and Lyme. And, and uh, there was somebody who decided that they were going to comment that, you know, endo is not connected to Lyme. And we had this really feisty debate. Matt and I as men certainly stayed out of that. Um, and we, you know, we thought that it was, it was a very interesting conversation. It's one we want to talk about more. So um, you seem to be in the camp that endo and Lyme are separate because you said, Hey, I have endo, I didn't have Lyme, I don't need to cheat anymore. And now I guess you're in a different camp. So talk to us about why yeah. your head was one where you thought endo was not connected to Lyme. And why do you now believe that endo is a symptom of Lyme disease? I think that endo is so misunderstood, to be honest. Um, so do you want me to give you my story of how I was diagnosed with that? Or do I, you- I, I dis- Yes, but unless unless you can unless you can't answer the question about why you were in one camp versus why you're in the other camp now, I'd, I'd really like to get a handle on where your growth moment was and why you now yeah. moved from believing that endo was separate from Lyme. In fact, your symptoms were all endo, as opposed mm -hmm. to now you believe that endo is uh, a symptom of Lyme. Yeah, I think that for me, before I went into surgery, you know, I was diagnosed with premature ovarian failure. My AMH at the lowest was 0 0.150, which most IVF doctors do not even do an egg retrieval for because there's no chance you're going to get an egg. So did try to do an egg retrieval, went, made it to day four, didn't have any eggs on day four, didn't even get to surgery. I believe I when I first got my endometriosis surgery, surgery, because I felt so much relief, like so much relief, so dramatically overnight because of my surgery, I was like, this is incredible. This has changed my life. And it has, that surgery has hands down changed my life. The doctor, Dr. K is the best doctor I've ever heard of. And so I was like, oh, this is how normal life feels. Oh my gosh, I need to hold on to this. You know, I've been fighting all of this stuff for a really long time. Maybe this is, this is the only thing that I have. Maybe this, all of my symptoms, because endo and Lyme have a lot of similar symptoms. You have joint pain, you have brain fog, you have, you know, problems with hormones, et cetera. So I was like, oh, maybe this is it. And then about two months after my surgery was when things started to kind of trickle back in that I still had co-infections in Lyme that I needed to take care of. So right. at first, but stay with yeah. that. So, so now, now, when do you, when do you step over the divide to believe that endo is a symptom of Lyme or triggered by Lyme rather than a separate illness? I think that there are women out there that have endometriosis that do not have Lyme, right? Okay. I also think that because women that have 
Lyme have higher inflammation and endo is a inflammatory disease. So if you have higher inflammation, you've been sexually assaulted, raped, or molested, likely 70% chance that you will have endometriosis. I'm not a doctor, but like, that's what the statistics show. So that's where I was like, okay, yeah, I do think that because I have all the predispositions to endometriosis, I have the Lyme, I have the sexual assault that it would, you know, follow that I would get endo. All right. So where's the chicken and where's the egg? Right. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Okay. So that's so, so. So you had the trauma. You have the endo. You're now more vulnerable to Lyme because because of the immune disruption. Or do you have the Lyme, which causes the inflammation, which makes you more vulnerable to endo? I mean, where is the chicken or the egg in this scenario for you? And can we know? Yeah, I don't know if we can know, but I will tell you that. So I had advanced stage two endo borderline stage three. And when I got diagnosed and when they went in, when Dr. K went in there, he's like, this takes 10 years to evolve at this point, seven to 10 years. But he's like, I think you're at the 10 year point. So if I was 10, I got it when I was 28. So it's like 18. So I've already would have had Lyme at that point. So I do think your body keeps the score and it makes sense. Trauma is held in your body. And so if you've been, if you have trauma in that area, it makes sense that that's where it would show up. Okay. So now you're, now you're, now you have to go back to the heel hive. Did you believe that prior to your endosurgery, you were healed from Lyme and no. therefore you could, you could stop the treatment or you believe you had to stop singing in order to be able to get the, get the good result from the endosurgery? No. Yeah. I mean, BBT is a blood thinner, right? So you have to stop when you go into surgery. So I had a call with Brooke and she was like, stop. And then in two weeks, start again. Um, and so that's, you know, how I had gone through it. But after the two weeks, I was like, I feel so good. There's no way that it's Lyme. It's just endo. So that was like my ignorance and like trying to ride that out for sure. Yeah. So that's, that's what I was trying to figure out. Like what, what, what was your intent? So you, you stopped because it was a, a blood thinner. Mm -hmm. You went for your endosurgery. You had the good result from the endosurgery and you just didn't want to treat anymore. And who wouldn't want to treat anymore yeah. with anything because you've had a whole life of treatment. So it's, you know, it's, it's, let's, let's just move on with our lives. Let's get out of this community. Let's go, let's go be the healthy, Free. happy Allie who's <laughs> yeah. now going to build her, uh, her life and her business and who wants to think about Lamzy anymore and who certainly wants to come on the Tick Bootcamp podcast and talk about it anymore, right? So, um, Happy so to be here. talk to us about, and thank you, talk to us about um, uh, how um, it was to go back to, you know, this therapy when you didn't want to be in therapy anymore and, and how it's going. Yeah, I definitely think that, you know, thank God for Brooke. She's so sweet that like there was a, a big learning curve for me to go inward and say like, what is this self-sabotage that's happening in you? And for me, it's always that this happens in a lot of parts of my life. It's always like when I'm about to hit either like a pivotal point or some type of change, I sabotage. And I'm like, well, I can't have that. And so it's like my, cause I said the tolerance was low. Right. So 
that for me was definitely a lot of internal work of like, what's going on here in yourself. And like, why are you not letting yourself become fully healed? So let me challenge you on that, Ali. Is it really self-sabotage or is it just, you just get tired of, of being in a therapeutic environment and doing all kinds of therapies, regardless of what it is? I think it was for me more self-sabotage because the, the bee venom therapy for me, isn't a lot like it's, it's, it's a lot. Okay. How do I just say this? It's less than what I was going through before. Right. And so, yeah. So I feel like, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there was a part of me that was like, Oh, I'm so over this. I want to close this chapter of my life, but you can't close a chapter of your life that hasn't been written yet. Well, no, but, and of course, right. I mean, again, one of, one of the reasons why I, I, I'm really excited to have Carrie on this podcast and I'll let her talk with you about this is we, we learn from, from, from Samantha Perry that, you know, we don't want to be stuck in the Lyme community, right? I mean, look, it's a tribe that no one wants to be in. Yeah. Right? And we have to have a process of onboarding people into this, into this tribe so that they can be validated and they can get the support and they can get the treatment they need, but they have to, there has to be an exit plan. Right. And there's nothing wrong with people wanting to exit and trying to go and live their lives and live the life that Sam Perry's living, for example. Right. Yeah. So again, I, I think we have to be really careful about whether or not we're in a position where we're, we believe we're self-sabotaging, which is kind of a criticism of ourselves, and, and, um, and looking at this as maybe going through the exit plan faster than maybe we should. And that's not unhealthy. We have to be careful to make sure that we're not leaving this warm, supportive community where we're getting the support that we need too early, but to make sure that we don't get stuck in this community and we, and we take on this identity that is not healthy yeah. and we stay in a tribe that we shouldn't want to stay in. Because again, I don't want to be critical of the tribe. There are a lot of really good people doing great things. But the last thing you want to do is be constantly focusing on your illness. So again, I know, I understand relative to having an IV in your arm or a port in your chest and nine months and $150,000 taking some bee stings is not so bad, but who the hell wants bee stings? Who the hell wants yeah. to do any treatment when yeah. it's clearly going to keep you in a place emotionally and spiritually where you're still focusing on the trauma of Lyme disease rather than moving on to having this good life? Yeah. And I think too, is that, that was just me personally, is that my tolerance is low for good things. So I knew that 80% of it was self-sabotage and whether that's a criticism, like that's just the reality of what I was doing. And 20% was probably that I was just ready to close this chapter, but like the thing couldn't be closed yet because I still had the infection to, to treat. One of the things we learned from Heather Globach last week is she said that when she was getting ready to leave the community that she had to go through the grief cycle as well, right? She had to grieve, go through the grief process to come into the community and create something new. And then when it was time for her to leave, she had to go through the grief cycle again to leave the community. What is your reaction to that? And, and do you think that's a part of maybe why you think you're self-sabotaging when you're really just grieving this now person who had this level of success through the various challenges she went through and she's getting ready to move on with her life. Yeah, I definitely think that's a huge part of it. I think the grief cycle, it's like denial, shame, all of that comes into it for sure. And I remember when I was first getting diagnosed, that was really heavy. Like I was definitely grieving the life that I had lived before jumping in to treatment and getting sicker um, because I can never go back there. Like she's, she's not at that version of Ali, like 
is not ever going to be me again, which is great. Right. But, um, also sad because yeah, I mean, there are many things that I've missed out on because of my chronic illness. Right. So, and now there are going to be many things that you're not going to be a part of when you're not going to be chronically ill anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to ask you before I hand you back over to Carrie to now reflect with me, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Carrie asked you to talk about the young alley or the, or the little alley. And now I'm going to ask you to talk, focus on the alley that went through the, through the journey of healing, right? If you were to do it again, if you were to go back to when you first got your diagnosis, what would you do differently now? I think I would have given myself time to grieve and sit with it a little bit more. I went into go mode real quick. So I got diagnosed three weeks before our wedding. And then two weeks after our honeymoon, I was in an IV room. And that's like out of the scarcity mindset. That's my own stuff coming up. Right. And so for me, it was, that's the advice I would give my younger self or someone that's going through this. It's like, it sucks and you're going to get through it and it's okay to not be okay. Like it really is okay to not be okay. And like sit with it, find a support, find a coach, find a therapist to let you process that out because it is a life shift and it's okay that it's a life shift. Okay, so the first thing you'd recommend either to yourself or to a new person is, is to recognize that you're going to grieve, mm -hmm. to recognize that you need to get through that grief cycle of denying, of anger, of, 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 um, of bargaining, of, of, of uh, ultimately accepting and then creating something new, right? You get through that grief cycle, right? Um, and you'd, you'd recommend that they work with someone to help them get through the grief cycle. And you'd work, work with people who have some experience with Lyme disease so that they can now make some, I guess, more um, reasoned you know, uh, decisions as opposed to now going into go mode, to use your term, and now being in a position where you can be taken advantage of by someone in the community. And you do feel like you were taken advantage of in large part because your parents had so many resources that although maybe early on they didn't take advantage of you, but certainly holding on to you as long as you, they did without referring you out was certainly uh, something that um, you had to face. For sure. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? Anything else that you would say to the alley who's starting treatment or someone you know in our community who's about to begin treatment? I think like look for support too. And I know I said that in like a therapist or a coach, but you know, for me, it was like, I was looking everywhere for like, oh, could I reach out to someone that has Lyme disease or has a diagnosis? And so just maybe sit with it and try to find someone local that like might be able to meet up with you for coffee or that you can like talk to on a voice memo, because that's where I like, I felt so alone. So I felt like I needed to quickly turn to someone that knew exactly what they were doing. And that's where I wish that I gathered a little bit more information before I kind of ignorantly or naively went into, you know, I just need someone to know what they're doing. And so it's, I think it's good and community is really important. Okay. So you don't want to make sure that you have community so you can get support and bounce ideas off of them so that when you're having some concerns about, for example, the way your doctor is treating you, that you can bounce back to community and see if the way you're feeling is consistent with either their experiences or whether or not, um, you know, it's time to pivot. 
Yes. Yes. Anything else that you would um, you would recommend that I'm going to ask you to put on your trauma coach hat for a minute. Is there anything else that you would recommend now as a trauma coach to Allie if Allie was starting this over again? So many things. All right. We need you to share. Um, I think that learning how to regulate your nervous system correctly before you go into a space that can be really activating and triggering is really important. So whether you are going the IV route, supplement route, B venom therapy route, whatever it is, the regulation of your nervous system is going to keep you either in fight or flight the whole time. And having practices, having techniques, having tools to be able to do that wherever you are at any moment is crucial to your healing. So fight or flight, of course, is putting you in a position where you can't heal, right? And you can't, you're not, if you're not in the rest digest state, regardless of the therapeutic input that you're getting from a doctor or a therapist or anyone else, it's not going to work, right? You're not going to heal because your body cannot heal when you're in fight or flight. And what would you recommend that you have done differently now, again, with the trauma coach hat on, not with the alley, um, alley of today, the trauma coach hat, what, what specifically would you recommend that they do? Meaning who would they work with and what kinds of things would they be doing so that they can get into the rest of the digest state so they can go through uh, successful healing physically? Yeah. You know, I always say that what works for one person might not work for you. And that's okay. I think that people have different techniques and strategies, but some of them are like somatic therapies, really great of learning how to get back in your body and release the trauma energy that's held in your body. Um, you know, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, psychotherapy, you know, all these different types of breath work, yoga, going for a walk, chanting, meditating, like all these different types of techniques can help regulate your polyvagus nerve, which, you know, takes control of your whole nervous system. So I would say finding a technique that is going to resonate with you is, is key. So Ali, I have just been moved on multiple levels, listening to your story. And, you know, one of the things that I have loved about the Lyme journey, if there's anything to love about the Lyme journey, is the process of what I call the butterfly effect, you know, and it's this metamorphosis. And my daughter who studied Spanish and loves being around, you know, people in Spain, she's my sweet mariposa, you know, she is someone who basically went through, you know, horrible things that people with Lyme and co-infections go through. And we got her through it and she had tools. And one of the, the things that you talk about that you were just explaining to Rich and that was like, he was saying, but how do you get, how do you get out? But you're still trying to stay in. And maybe what you can tell me with this transformation process as we moved in, if we move into that discussion is how important it is because you are a trauma therapist, how important it is to have a toolbox. And a toolbox doesn't mean that you're stuck in that community of being unwell. The toolbox is actually what I think is the vehicle that moves you out into an independent space, right? Where you can now take all that you have learned, you have it in this space. It feels good for you because it's your tried and true and it's your, it's your stuff, right? It, it is kind of like your warrior armor, so to speak. 
but it's a, it's a it's a place where you turn to. So when you talk about this transformation now of who you've become now, how do you feel about that? Do you do you have a, a toolbox that doesn't keep you tied and connected to the sick space, but yeah. helps you be free, like free alley? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I do have a toolbox and um, as a trauma coach, like, I think it's really important for people to have that toolbox. And, you know, there are so many things that work for me, but like also might not work for my friend. And I think that's, what's really crucial here is that it's like trying on a pair of jeans, right? Jeans are very hard to find, especially if you're a woman, you're kind of curvy, you have a certain hip to waist ratio. And it's like, just because one pair of jeans doesn't fit, doesn't mean that you're not going to find your pair of jeans. And so that's how I like to relate it when we're talking about healing techniques or modalities, when it comes to trauma and working through trauma, it's really, you know, don't give up on yourself in that space too. And to create a toolbox that you can carry around with you and say, okay, today I need this tool. And tomorrow I might need this other tool. And like, that's what will help you keep on moving forward in this space to handle your grief, to process what's coming up for you, because it looks differently every day. Like it really does. And to be okay with that process, that different things are going to come up at different times. And toolboxes and the tools that are in them, they're not crutches, right? No. So express yeah. that because I think people look at them as it's a crutch. Oh, I still have this, mm-hmm. but it's not. Yeah, no. I always teach my clients too, is like what works today might be a tool six months from now and you just don't know. And so it's good to have to try these different tools or things on and they're not a crutch. Like if you, I think that we're so hard on ourselves that whatever we're doing is like not good enough or that we need to be farther along or something else needs to be different. And it's like, you are exactly where you need to be in this journey. You are exactly and beautifully and perfectly made where you are right now. And if you need to go back to a tool that you used like a year ago, six years ago, a month ago, like that's beautiful because you're, you're not coming from an ego centered place. You're actually being in touch with your intuition And that's something to celebrate. How have you transformed in your daily life in terms of, you know, being social and relationships and, you know, things like that? I have a lot more boundaries. I have a lot more boundaries. Um, I used to be out of my own trauma and pain, right? That little young alley that would put everyone else first besides herself and, would not listen to what's coming up in her body, et cetera. And um, yeah, I don't do that as much anymore. And I try to catch myself a lot when I do do that because it's not helpful to my healing at all in my nervous system and like moving forward. So my boundaries are different. Um, I've definitely had to cut off certain relationships with friends that are really draining or take, 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 because I just don't have the energy for it. Like I'm trying to have more boundaries in that way. I think people get guilty about this whole boundaries thing. Mm -hmm. So with your Allie, who was unwell and your Allie, who is a professional dealing with trauma, can you talk about how people should take that aspect off as they are putting up these really necessary boundaries? Yeah. Boundaries are a form of self-care. Like if you don't have boundaries, you really don't have anything. I think people think boundaries are like rude and that you're, you know, a B word and that you're all these things because you have boundaries. And it's like, actually you're taking care of yourself because if you can't show up for yourself, you can't show up for anyone else. And so if you don't have boundaries to show up for yourself and you're putting everyone else first, or you're doing these things, then like, you're going to stay stuck in that cycle of not putting yourself first and moving and progressing forward. 
Oh, absolutely. And so in, in doing that, who's Allie now? I mean, we don't want to be huge departures from what we were because those are parts of us. They're so important parts of us. So who is, who's Allie now? Yeah. Allie is, um, a wife. Allie is a dog mom. Allie is a trauma coach. And I never thought that I would be in this role as a trauma coach at all. I thought I was going to be like, I told you that I was gonna be like a PR person. And I really do believe that like the universe was breaking me down in the IV room to build me back up into this person of, you know, kindly and with boundaries, helping other people move forward in their life. Well, yeah, because I think there's still parts of you. You were the person who wanted to help and be all those things, but then you shifted gears and wanted to be, you know, on, you know, doing what sports reporting or something yeah. like that, Aaron Andrews. Yeah. Um, so brought you back. And so do you feel like you kind of morphed into what you thought you were going to be God given, but it's just taken on a different shape because of how you had to go through life along the way. For sure. For sure. Hands down. I think that, yeah, I mean, I say that all the time, this literally this experience brought me to my knees and humbled me so deeply that I asked myself, like, who do you want to be when you get out of this IV room? And how was that really going to be in alignment with who you were put on this earth to be. And do you like, do you just love the alley that you are now? Do you wake up and go, I dig this person. I think it's so important that there's a connection in that. And it's, it's not, you know, being braggadocious or anything. So no, I do like that. I love her. Yeah. I wake up. I'm really proud of the person that I've become. I'm like really grateful for the resources and the things that I put out in the world. And I feel like I move from a place of like deep alignment. And so that you love this alley now and you've really come, it's big, way more than a full circle. And <laughs> you're, you're now helping people in the Lyme community. How do you feel about helping people in the Lyme community without being tethered to the Lyme community and almost like an anchor heaviness? Yeah. I think that there's, that's the boundaries part for me, right. In my line of work, <laughs> you know, it's a quick and dirty way to heal your own stuff is helping other people. Um, because Wait, it's bringing you say up quick and dirty. I love that yeah. phrase. It's a quick and yeah. dirty way. So go ahead, explain that. <laughs> yeah, it's a quick and dirty way to, ha- to, you know, heal yourself because your things that you think you've worked through are going to come up real quick to the surface when you're helping another client or member move through their own stuff. That's going to trigger your stuff right to the surface. And it's like this constant, self-improvement and working on yourself too. Um, so yeah, I, that's like the boundaries piece for me. It's like how to be compassionate, how to be supportive, but not take it on as my own. And if it is triggering my stuff, working with my own personal therapist to move that out of my nervous system. So it doesn't get stuck. Yeah. That's so super important. You still have someone in place that you can go to. Oh yeah. Yeah. I I could not do this work without that. Yeah. There's no way. There's no well, way. Well, because you know, you are a trauma specialist, but it's important to know even a trauma specialist needs to have someone that they can go oh, to. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I think it's so human. It is so human. You're absolutely right about that. Yeah. So, you know, Rich gave me the task of coming up with a final question and, you know, through thinking about all you have been through, I think I have about six, but I have to consolidate because <laughs> there's so many But I think the one thing I want you to impart, I think, to others, someone who's just newly checking in and they are trying to figure out 
how to center themselves to know best how to advocate and not be in this trauma pain from all the different places that they've shuffled around to. What do you say to that, that person so that they can keep a sense of self and have a bit of clarity as they move through this process? That's a good question. It's a loaded question. I mean, I would say like what I had told Rich, which is that you have to find something that's going to keep you grounded in the healing technique space. When I talk about healing techniques, there's so many, right? It's like you can go to therapy, you can work with a trauma coach, you can try on all these different things, meditate, et cetera. But if you don't stay grounded and true to who you are, you can really get rocked by these doctors and what they say and other people coming in your DMs or trying to give you advice. And like, you can get really swayed by things because you're just eager to understand. And when you're eager to understand, you'll follow every breadcrumb because you just want to feel better. And so that that's okay. But to really like find something that grounds you and keeps you whole without like no one else has the parts of you that you need. You only have the parts of you that you need. So to really stay true to that. And to really like, if someone says something and you intuitively don't agree with it, listen to that. That is tremendous advice. And, um, I I can't thank you enough because you brought us a suitcase that was like chock full of so much that I have to believe that you putting your heart and soul out there to, share your journey and share your story that is Lyme and then some has got to resonate with so many people. So thank you so much for sharing your beautiful Lyme story because it is beautiful. And, you know, I just wish you continued wellness. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the tick bootcamp interview with our guest, Allie Cates. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Allie, please visit her Instagram page at alliecates.co. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com slash bite to view the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of over 250 episodes for specific keywords, please visit tickbootcamp.com slash search. You can also subscribe to our email list at tickbootcamp.com slash join. If you'd like to share feedback with Tick Bootcamp, please use the contact form on our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you. And as always, thanks so much for listening.